Last week, we considered the importance of headship, the idea of headship in 1 Corinthians 11. However, as we focused on the details of that passage, we observed that Paul was not there using the anatomical metaphor. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul did not paint a picture of a head with a body. But when we come to Ephesians, Paul develops this image more fully. He certainly connects a head with a body, and he does so in two ways. He draws a parallel between Jesus as a head and the church as his body, and a husband as a head and his wife as his body. The significance of headship is in connection with authority, and it carries over from 1 Corinthians, but it takes on certain more specific attributes in Ephesians. But before we get to the famous identification of husband as head and wife as body, Paul already highlights Jesus' headship in Ephesians. The very first reference to Jesus' headship is obscured by most of our English translations. Pretty much only the 1984 NIV uses the word head in Ephesians 1.10. Here, Paul uses a rare word, a word he probably made up, by turning the Greek word for head into a verb and adding a preposition on the front. In the middle of this great sentence in Ephesians 1 that spans from verse 3 on down to verse 14, in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, we read in the 1984 NIV, "...and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment." to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. These two verses may serve as a pretty good summary of the main point of Ephesians. Later, we'll see how Paul uses the word mystery to thread his main argument through the whole letter, bringing it to a surprising climax in chapter 5. How does God bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head? Through the gospel. Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. Paul pictures all of creation as a kind of household. And Jesus is the head of that universal household. The household got turned upside down by Adam and Eve's rebellion in Genesis 3. Jesus has come as a kind of household manager to restore the household of creation to its proper order. He accomplishes this restoration by creating one new man, a new humanity, the church, which functions as his body on the earth. And under Jesus' headship, under his household management, under his sovereign rule, the church grows to accomplish his purposes on the earth until he returns to accomplish the final radical renovation of his household through bodily resurrection, and a new heaven and a new earth. Ironically, human marriage will not continue in that new creation. But at the same time, human marriage now plays a pivotal role in the growth of the church for the mission of the church, pointing ahead to those final new creation realities. Human marriage displays the gospel, which looks back to Jesus' loving sacrifice for his church looks around today at the church's submission to Jesus' loving leadership and looks forward to Jesus' return for the consummation of his own marriage. 
That is what Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is really about. It's easy to lose the main point in our desire to draw out application for our struggling marriages. The mega mystery of the Messiah's marriage is what Paul wants us to focus on. And in this passage, he both takes us back to Genesis and also pushes us ahead to Revelation. Yes, there is relevant instruction here for our marriages, but we must set that practical guidance in its proper context, the context of a hope that transcends our human marriages. When we read this passage rightly, we can have our perspective on our marriage completely reframed. And I dare say every married person, every person who hopes to be married, and every person who cares for someone who's married, I think that covers everybody, needs to have their perspective shifted in this way. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul begins this section of his instruction by instructing wives to submit respectfully to their own husbands. He's writing to Christians in particular, and as we look at this passage, rather than walking strictly verse by verse, I'd like to consider Paul's words in the context of the whole passage. Since he repeats himself and circles back around his argument, we might find it helpful to consider all that he says to wives, all that he says to husbands, and then zoom in on what he says about Jesus. My hope is that this manner of approach will help us keep the forest in view and not get lost in the trees. So let's look at verses 22 to 24 and the second half of verse 33, Paul's instruction to wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The call for submission and the call for respect need to be held together. Using the word respect at the end of the passage, Paul ties his discussion of marriage back to verse 21, which says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thus, wives should submit respectfully to their own husbands as an expression of their respect for Jesus. Verse 21 sets the stage for Paul's discussion of household dynamics in this passage and on through chapter 6, verse 9. The submission toward one another then gets fleshed out in terms of wives toward uh, wives choosing to submit to their husbands, children obeying their parents, and slaves obeying their masters. And as the word submitting in verse 21 is a Greek participle, it's hanging off of Paul's command from back in verse 18, where he addresses the whole church in Ephesus, commanding them to be filled by the Spirit. If we ask Paul, what does that look like? His answer follows with a string of participles, climaxing with verse 21. Thus, Paul is saying, be filled by the Spirit by submitting to one another, and specifically by wives submitting to their husbands. The form of Paul's instruction is such that he emphasizes the voluntary nature of this submission. Wives are to submit themselves or to choose to submit to their own husbands. In other words, we can observe that Paul doesn't command husbands to make their wives submit or demand or enforce their submission in any way. 
Wives are responsible directly to Jesus for how, when, and to what degree they choose to submit to their husbands. The phrase, as to the Lord, in verse 22, combined with the phrase, in everything, in verse 24, could be misunderstood to imply that the husband's authority is universal and total, as Jesus' authority is. However, this is surely wrong. The phrase, as to the Lord, most likely indicates that the wife chooses to submit to her husband as an expression of her submission to Jesus. This tempers and qualifies the phrase, in everything, in verse 24. If a husband seeks to get his wife to do something sinful, then the wife cannot submit to him in that, because then she wouldn't be submitting to Jesus. Said differently... Wives must obey Jesus by refusing to comply with husbands who seek to draw them into sin. Unlike Roman household codes, the husband does not have absolute authority. One commentator summarizes simply, Husbands are delegated heads, no more. If any man asks of his wife what God forbids, his wife must refuse. When Paul uses the phrase, in everything, in verse 24, he refers to anything and everything that doesn't go against the absolute authority of Jesus. He probably uses the phrase to press wives to recognize that they shouldn't withhold any area of their lives from her husband's input. He probably uh, sketches it this way to help them be completely open completely vulnerable with their husbands. So, for example, a wife who has a job and earns her own income shouldn't think that she can keep her spending a secret from her husband or refuse to listen should he offer some counsel on how she uses those funds. Said more positively, a wife should welcome the input of her husband in every area of her life. This does not give him the right to seek to dominate or control. Rather, Paul presses wives to remain open and vulnerable with her husband in such a way that she doesn't seek to undermine or subvert or even complicate his God-designed responsibility in their relationship. In verse 23, Paul sets up the model for the wife's voluntary yielding to her husband, referring to the anatomical metaphor to define headship. As we discussed last week, headship implies a measure of authority. As Paul presents the husband's God-defined role as head in relationship to his wife as body, as the theological reason for the wife's submission, he models this on the Messiah's headship over the church. We already summarized how Paul has developed this image somewhat in Ephesians. Paul further specifies Christ's headship over the church by referring to Jesus being the church's savior. While we could focus on Jesus' sovereign rule, exercising his authority to command and govern the church, that is not Paul's focus. As commentator Frank Thielman observes, in Ephesians, Christ's authority has been used not to control the church, but to reconcile it to God at the cost of his own life, and to equip the church with what it needs for accomplishing God's purposes. However, the husband is not his wife's savior. Nor does a wife relate to God through her husband, as though the husband serves as some kind of priestly mediator for his wife. Only Jesus is Savior. Only Jesus is mediator between humans and God. So does Paul even mean for this part to be part of the parallel? Or is he already hinting toward his real focus for this passage? 
If there is a parallel at all, it simply implies that the husband carries the responsibility for providing for and protecting his wife. It's important, however, that we not carry that analogy too far. In this passage, wives are set parallel to the church, by which Paul merely intends to illustrate wives' responsibility to choose to submit to their own husband's labor of leading, providing for, and protecting. None of this suggests that wives are inferior to husbands. In fact, the fact that Paul commands them to voluntarily yield, to choose to submit, suggests their equality. Now let's consider Paul's instruction to husbands. They must love their wives sacrificially. We'll tie together verses 25, 28, and 29, and the first part of 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. In these verses, husbands are commanded to love their wives in two ways. First, husbands must love their wives like Christ loved the church. Second, husbands must love their wives like they love their own bodies. If the husband is the head of his wife, God has appointed him to lead. But what is the nature of husbandly leadership? What is the nature of a husband's authority? It is an authority of love. It is authority exercised in service of his wife. As biblical counselor Bob Kellerman puts it, the husband takes the lead in dying. Or as author Sam Andreadis puts it in his book, Engendered, Authority, properly understood, involves a death to self every day for those we love. This is what it means to be in charge. The husband's love for his wife is first compared with Jesus' self-sacrificing love for the church. Jesus loved the church by dying. The husband must love his wife by dying. But before the husbands in the room freak out and shrink back, or before we all wither under the impossibility of the calling, remember that Jesus' death led to resurrection. As Professor Jim Hamilton puts it, what looks like death gives way to life. Just as the death of Jesus opened the gates of life, so also the husband's death-to-self-love for his wife puts gospel life in his heart. Hamilton actually points to a life-giving result in the husband. Three times in this passage, Paul repeats himself. This presses both the importance of the practice as well as its difficulty. Why is it so hard to love our wives? It's not primarily because they're so unlovable. When we remember that the husband's model is Christ's love for the church, we can indeed reflect on how unlovable the church often is, whether considered as a whole or when we zoom in on individual members Or, most damningly, when we look carefully in the mirror, we see how unlovely the bride of Christ often is. But, the point is, the difficulty for husbands loving their wives is in the manner of our love. That is to say, it is stinking hard to die. Now, Christ's death for the church is unique. 
Only His death pays for sins. So again, the analogy must not be pressed too far. Husbands, we are called to die, but not to atone for our wife's sins. If she's a believer, Jesus has already done that for her. Rather, the sacrificial nature of our love, of our giving ourselves up for our wives, is to be in the daily choices we make, in the way we express our authority, in the way we serve and protect her. Hamilton, again, is helpful and memorable. Christ did not love the church by doing what he wanted, but by doing what the church needed. Remembering back to last week, as we considered that Christ is head over every man in the church, and God is the head of Christ, we saw that Jesus is a head, and Jesus has a head. That is to say, he submitted himself to the authority of God the Father. As husbands, we are not called to submit to our wives' desires. We are not seeking to pursue merely what she wants, but neither are we to pursue what we want. We, too, have a head. This is where combining the two comparisons is helpful. We're holding together how Paul says husbands must love like Jesus loved the church, and also how Paul says husbands must love like we already love our own bodies. What should we want for our physical bodies? We should want them to function at maximum capacity. We should want them to be healthy. In a word, we should want them to flourish. Paul says, husband, die for your wife so that she might flourish. Take that out of context and you have a recipe for disaster and depression. Author Tim Savage in his book, No Ordinary Marriage, tells a story of how a husband stepped between his wife and a grizzly bear. He literally gave his life so that his wife could live. He died so that she could get away safely. Every Christian husband certainly claims to be ready to do just that if the opportunity should arise. Tim Savage suggests, on the other hand, that, quote, the love of a Christian husband ought to be characterized by an even greater degree of sacrifice, more than a life given in death, but a life given in life. Perhaps this is why Paul doesn't actually refer to Jesus dying for the church here. He uses the language of giving himself up for her. He is referring to Jesus' death, but again, the analogy must not be pressed too far. He is not calling for husbands to die physically. In verse 29, he further elaborates on what this love, what this dying will look like. It will look like nourishing and cherishing one's own physical body. Husbands, we've got to get these two words in our vocabulary and into our practical living. The first word has to do with physical nurture. Think about the ways you should nourish your body. Ideally, if you're going to keep it healthy, you're responsibly managing what you eat. You protect your body by putting on proper clothes. You prevent harmful substances from entering your body. But beyond that, you should also exercise. Author Sam Andreadis uses the image of bodybuilding in this context. He writes... You and your wife are so connected that your sanctifying headship is like exercising and feeding your own body. Your bodybuilding shapes great benefits for you from her muscular faith. I like the way he said that. Her muscular faith benefits you, husband, 
We provide this nourishment for ourselves. We seek these things out. We seek to manage our schedules so that we're getting all these things that we genuinely need to continue functioning as healthy individuals in this world. Paul says to husbands, seek those things out for your wife. Nourish her. Provide for her. To borrow Paul's words from Philippians 2, put her concerns before your own. Nourish her at cost to yourself. If you think that's hard, consider the word cherish. The only other time Paul uses the word comes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, where he expresses his affectionate concern for the Christians there in terms of a nursing mother's love for her babies. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. A nursing mother gives of herself, gives of her own body to feed her baby. Likewise, Paul gave of himself to preach the gospel to these folks. However, the literal meaning of this word refers to heating or keeping something warm. Thus, the intimate image is not merely in the practical feeding of the baby, but in the way a mother draws her nursing baby close to herself, cradling the baby, providing not merely food, but also warmth. In Ephesians 5, Paul is observing that humans tend to treat their own bodies with tender care. When we think of our physical bodies, we're talking about coats and blankets. But in the context of relationships, Paul's surely referring to emotional warmth, tenderness. Husbands, we are commanded to express emotional warmth toward our wives. This is to prioritize caring for her, hearing what she's concerned about, carrying her emotional burdens, entering her emotional world, drawing her into a warm embrace, maybe even literally sometimes. Don't you see that that's what the Son of God did for all of us? He could have remained distant from our emotional turmoil, but he didn't. He, he experienced grief, anger, pain, sadness, anxiety, and shame. And he entered into the emotional turmoil of the suffering people he encountered on a daily basis. Husbands, are you warm toward your wife in this way? A little tenderness goes a long way, my friend. Will you believe God's word here? Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. You might be thinking that everything we've been talking about is just too hard. This is impossible. You might be thinking, Justin, you don't know how emotionally stunted I am. I'll admit that I have the emotional range of a teaspoon. She's so needy and I don't have the capacity. I don't have a clue what it means to be warm toward my wife. To that, I say three things. And I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm talking to any of you other guys. First, ask her. Ask her and listen to what she says. It might not be quite as hard as you think. Second, remember that husbands loving their wives this way is an evidence of the Holy Spirit's filling the church from verse 18 in our passage. So after you've asked her, ask the Spirit for his empowering grace. Third, believe God's word here. Paul says it's good for you. 
Paul says loving her this way is a way of loving yourself properly. It will have good effects for you. In other words, it's worth the effort. It's worth, it's worth paying the cost. It's worth learning some new skills. But Paul wants us to see Jesus more clearly here. So in verses 25 to 27, he highlights how the Messiah loved the church sacrificially and sanctifyingly. Starting in the second part of verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The first and perhaps most important thing to notice in these verses is that Paul is not talking directly about marriage. In other words, it is not right to say that it's the husband's job to sanctify his wife, to make his wife holy. There is a comparison here But like the other aspects of the analogies Paul uses in this passage, we must not take it too far. In verses 26 and 27, Paul is highlighting the purpose and results of Jesus' death for the church. Paul is not here describing what is often called progressive sanctification. Rather, he's talking about positional or initial sanctification. Jesus' sacrifice set apart a people for himself, a body for himself, a bride for himself. Jesus' death provided access to God's holy presence for the unholy to become holy, for the unclean to become clean. How does God set apart people for himself? Here, Paul says that the Messiah cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Notice the tense of the verb. This is referring to a -a once-in-a-lifetime act, an initial bath that never needs to be repeated. Paul is not likely referring to baptism, however. Instead, he's referring to that which baptism symbolizes. This cleansing happens for every sinner who trusts in Jesus the moment they begin trusting in Jesus. This refers to a person's union with Christ through faith. Paul is alluding to some of the imagery contained in the most graphic chapter of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16. The prophet addresses the people of Jerusalem, reminding them of how Yahweh first founded the nation of Israel. He pictures them first as a discarded baby. The baby's Amorite father and Hittite mother attempted to abort the baby cast her off in her blood. And then the prophet depicts Yahweh as finding her on the side of the road. Ezekiel 16, 6 and 7 has the Lord saying, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. The historical realities that this is depicting goes back to the book of Genesis. The Lord chose Abram, the pagan Abram, to begin the nation of Israel. 
Then the Lord caused the descendants of Abram to be fruitful and multiply and flourish in the land of Egypt, so much so that the powerful nation of Egypt felt threatened by their presence and therefore enslaved the Israelites. Then the Lord came to rescue them from their slavery, bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai. It was there that Yahweh proposed marriage to them and initiated a covenant with them. Ezekiel depicts that in the next verses of his message. Look at verses 8 and 9. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares Lord Yahweh, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Paul, Paul, in Ephesians 5, is drawing on this bathing imagery from this passage, using a common word in the ancient world for bridal baths, which involved a bride preparing for her wedding through a ritual washing ceremony. Paul says this happened to the church as a result of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And he clarifies that the water used for this bath was the word. This is the Greek word rhema. And some of you may have heard people say that there is a distinction between this word rhema from the usual Greek word for word, logos, This is false. The words are used synonymously. And more importantly, in this context, it's pretty clear that the word he's referring to is the proclaimed gospel. Thus, the metaphorical water that bathes people as they enter the church is the literal gospel message. Paul uses this word rhema again in the next section of Ephesians, where he defines the sword of the Spirit as the word of God. The Spirit's sword is the gospel, the message he uses to both create and protect the church. Here, in Ephesians 5, the gospel is the cleansing agent used to wash sinners clean as they become members of the church through faith. As commentator Frank Thielman points out, this connects back with chapter 1 as well. He writes, this cleansing, sanctifying action was applied to them when they were washed in the verbal proclamation of the gospel. That is, when they heard the gospel preached, believed it, and were sealed as God's special people by the Holy Spirit. Referring to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In verse 27 here in chapter 5, Paul looks ahead to the completion of the church's salvation in the future the presentation of the bride for the consummation of the marriage. To borrow the logic of Romans 8, 29, and 30, everyone whom Jesus sanctifies, he presents to himself in glory. One author sought to visualize Paul's theology here. If you'll put the next slide up there, you can take a look here, a way of charting out. Sorry, you don't get the picture. In any case, I'll explain it. Paul's focus here in verses 26 and 27 is on the beginning stage of sanctification and the final stage of glorification. There's some stuff that happens in the middle, what we tend to talk about as progressive sanctification. And the logic of Paul's argument here includes an implied guarantee that God will keep those whom he has sanctified already 
by cleansing them through the gospel, ensuring that we all make it to the finish line of sharing in God's own glory. That is the point. In terms of marriage, as we think about where we are in the process today, we remain in the betrothal period. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul speaks of his own role in betrothing believers to Christ through his own preaching of the gospel. Here he highlights Jesus as the one who loved the church, who died for the church, who sanctified the church, who cleansed the church, and who will ultimately present the church to himself in glory. The word translated splendor in the ESV is a glory word in Greek. As David Peterson, author of an excellent study of sanctification entitled Possessed by God, observes, as in Revelation 21, 9 to 11, the bride of Christ will be presented to him having the glory of God. This glory is the perfection of character with which the Lord has endowed her. Only those who are sanctified by Christ now can be presented to him in glory then. He further describes what this will mean in marital imagery. The church will be spotless with no wrinkles or blemishes or stains. The final phrase of verse 27 is important as it repeats something Paul said at the beginning of the letter. The final result that Paul mentions here of Jesus' death is that the church will be holy and without blemish or holy and blameless. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul used this phrase to describe the purpose of election. Why did God choose whom he would save before creation? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That last phrase, in love, probably does go with the phrase holy and blameless so that what Paul's describing there is as we anticipate our final holiness and blamelessness, we express that in our day-to-day lives in love for each other. But Paul has in view God's ultimate purpose in election, that he would save believers and transform believers into a holy and blameless bride for his son. This is the centerpiece and main point of Paul's discussion in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Thus, in these verses, Paul has drawn on the imagery of Ezekiel 16, which depicted Yahweh's selection of Israel as his bride. She was bloody and doomed to die when he gave her life. Then... He preserved her and at the right time married her, which included cleansing her, dressing her for the wedding with beautiful clothing, jewelry, and a crown, as you could see in the rest of Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel was reminding unfaithful Israel at the time of what God had done for her as a backdrop to his judgment of her adultery in a wonderful turn. In line with some of Ezekiel's later prophecies, Paul indicates that the Lord is remarrying his bride. In the person of the Messiah, she's been a, she, in the person of the Messiah, Yahweh is reconstituting his bride. In the person of the Messiah, God himself lives and remarries his people. She has been unfaithful. She has been adulterous. She has been dirty. She has been divorced. But the Lord has provided a cleansing sacrifice, fulfilling the promises of the new covenant. From Ezekiel 16, we turn to Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. 
He fulfilled this promise in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah through the Persian king Cyrus. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This cleansing was provided through the sanctifying death of Jesus, the Messiah. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the new birth Jesus told Nicodemus about that would begin happening for all who believe in Jesus on the first day of Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and forevermore. All of this was promised to the rebellious house of Israel, to the Jews. And Paul has gone to great lengths in Ephesians to show how these promises are being fulfilled in the church made up of Jew and Gentile together. Thus, Messiah's bride is the Jew-Gentile church. And Messiah is Yahweh, transforming His original unfaithful bride into a multi-ethnic people, cleansed of all their sin, destined to inhabit the new creation, forever united in marriage to their Savior and Head. As verse 28 begins, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, there is a parallel for husbands. As I said earlier, however, husbands do not, cannot sanctify their wives. Husbands do not, cannot cleanse their wives with the Word. Only Jesus does that through the Holy Spirit. But Paul does draw a parallel. Ultimately, Scottish commentator Ian Hamilton gets the gist quite well when he writes, the first responsibility of a husband is to see his wife safely to glory. Practically, this means the husband needs to play the long game. Christian husbands need to look for ways... Now listen to the way I'm going to say this. Christian husbands need to look for ways to encourage their wives to take responsibility for their own spiritual growth while avoiding the tendency to preach at them, cajole them, or otherwise manipulate them. Husbands, you are not responsible for your wife's holiness. This could also imply that husbands need to be mindful of the example they set for their wives. Husbands should want to say to their wives what Paul says to the Corinthians. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This is the main way, I think, God uses husbands to promote their wives' growth in holiness. In line with this whole complex of imagery, Paul now takes us back to the beginning and we can consider the mega mystery of the Messiah's marriage. We'll begin in the middle of verse 29 and read through verse 32. Just as Christ does nourish and cherish the church, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Greek word translated mystery is mysterion, and the Greek word translated profound is megas. Thus we get mega mystery. But what is Paul talking about? That's more important. First, he's finishing out his comparison. 
He just observed how husbands tend to nourish and cherish their own bodies, and we discussed the rich meaning of those terms. Now Paul extends those actions to what Christ does for the church. So in verses 26 and 27, Paul both looked back to Jesus' initial sanctification of the church and looked forward to the final presentation of the spotless bride when he returns. Here in verses 29 to 32, Paul looks around to see the work of Jesus for the church in the here and now. The question on the table is, what has Jesus done for you lately? He's been busy nourishing and cherishing you. How's he doing that? Well, we could look back to chapter 4 in Ephesians, verses 9 to 16, to see how Paul described the way Jesus provides for the growth of the body. He gives church leaders to churches to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Does that not seem romantic enough? Is that not sexy enough for the discussion of the marriage of the Messiah here and his church? Perhaps there's a challenge here for church leaders, particularly for elders. Are we expressing the kind of care that extends to caring for the emotional health of the members? Are we leaders shepherding with the tender heart of our good shepherd? Paul doesn't elaborate here on the how of Christ's nourishing and cherishing. Instead, he highlights a reason why. Because we are members of his body. Since no man hated his own body, then Christ surely doesn't hate his own body. Thus, as Jesus nourishes and cherishes his body, he is caring for, providing for, and protecting the members of himself. Every member of Christ's body is indispensable to him. You are indispensable to Christ. He is fully capable of caring for his church body and every member of it. Ironically, he let his physical body be destroyed in order to secure an indestructible resurrection body for himself and for each of us. Thus, the fact that he is sitting enthroned right now in a resurrected body should be proof to each one of us, that he can finish what he started and that he will provide for us, preserve us, and present us to himself blameless on that day when he returns. Now, without warning, without introduction, without a word of transition, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. He just said, because we are members of his body, and then he says, therefore, for this reason, in the context of Genesis 2, we recall that Moses adds this comment as a way of applying the story of the original man's marriage to the original woman to the marriage practices of his own day. God unites Adam and Eve together in a way that begins the first human family. Thus, every man and woman whom God unites together in marriage begins a new family with the husband as the head of the new family unit. However, Paul sees more. He particularly focuses on the last part of Genesis 2.24, that the two shall become one flesh. Whereas Moses was focused on a husband and wife uniting in marriage, Paul says that Moses was also pointing toward Christ and the church uniting in marriage. As one writer has suggested, perhaps we should see Paul identifying the very first messianic prophecy in Scripture, hiding in plain sight. He characterizes what he's talking about with the word mystery, and it's very important for us to be clear on what we understand by this word. Our culture uses the word mystery to refer to a type of novel, a whodunit, 
or to characterize a situation that we don't fully understand. In the church, it has been common for Bible teachers to define the word in terms of new revelation. I've heard dispensationalists such as John MacArthur indicate that Paul uses the word mystery to refer to teachings that were not revealed in the Old Testament. And this is usually applied to the reality of the church. I call foul on this definition for a host of reasons. But rather than quibble about definitions, let's just look at the way Paul uses the word in Ephesians. Paul uses the word in five separate passages. We're going to race through them. As we saw earlier in chapter 1, he used the term in his first major sentence of the book and connected it to the idea of Christ's headship. So in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he referred to the mystery of God's will as something that was made known to us Christians. And he said that this mystery was moving toward its final fulfillment in bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He builds on this, adding clarity and depth to the mystery for his readers in chapter 3. Consider chapter 3, verses 2 to 6. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Pause there in verse 5 for just a moment. This is absolutely crucial. Note the little word, as. The mystery was not made known to people in previous generations during the Old Testament period as it has now been revealed to the apostles. In this context, as most likely means as much as or to the degree which. Thus, the mystery was partially revealed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Though the New Testament, through the New Testament writings, the Holy Spirit has further revealed the mystery. Immediately after he says this, he defines the mystery in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers, co-sharers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now the question that we and Paul's readers should be asking at this point is... What is new about what Paul says here? What about this wasn't revealed already in the Old Testament? That the Gentiles would come to salvation is an Old Testament doctrine. That the Gentiles would join with Israel and share in the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham is an Old Testament doctrine. Even the way Yahweh expressed His promises to Abraham in the first place in Genesis, points toward the Gentiles becoming full participants in the fulfillment. So what part of the mystery was hidden? It's that Jew and Gentile together enjoy the fulfillment of the promises only in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel, as Paul preached it, indicates that neither Jew nor Gentile must obey the Mosaic law or take on any of the unique Israelite covenant signs in order to live as God's people. In the Old Testament period, a Gentile like Uriah the Hittite would have had to be circumcised, observe the Sabbath, and obey the Mosaic law in order to be considered a part of Israel. With Jesus' death on the cross, the new covenant has been inaugurated, and no one, neither Jew nor Gentile, has to do these things anymore 
to be considered a member of God's people. The fulfillment of Israel has come in the multi-ethnic church. That the Messiah would fulfill the requirements of the law in himself in such a way that Jews and Gentiles alike only need to believe in him rather than follow Israelite ways is part of the mystery that Paul makes clear. In these verses, Paul refers to the Messiah as the mystery and then further elaborates the mystery as the fact that Gentiles share with Jews in the Messiah through the gospel. He reiterates this in the next paragraph. In Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, we read, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The plan of the mystery is the proclamation of the gospel. And it results in God's multifaceted wisdom being put on display in the church, even for the angelic audience to see and marvel at. In Ephesians 6.19, Paul again makes it clear that the mystery is his proclamation of the gospel, which again was truly revealed in the Old Testament, though not completely revealed in the Old Testament. He asked the Ephesians to pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now, as we return to Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul points to another Old Testament text and indicates that it too speaks of Christ and the church. So rather than defining mystery in the New Testament or in Paul's letters as something not revealed in the Old Testament, we should rather understand the term to refer to the truth of the gospel that was partially hidden in the Old Testament text that the New Testament authors were empowered by the Holy Spirit to draw out for Christian readers. Thus, Paul reads Genesis 2.24 and sees the two shall become one flesh as pointing toward the Messiah and the church becoming one flesh, uniting as head and body in an eternal marriage relationship. Throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with Israel was depicted as a marriage. And through that depiction, it was partially hidden that the remarriage made necessary because of Israel's constant rebellion, idolatry, spiritual adultery, would take place in the incarnation of Yahweh, the Messiah himself. And Israel would need to be transformed into the multi-ethnic people God always planned them to be. The fact that Christ and the church are to be one is also a major theme in Ephesians. The word one appears 15 times in Ephesians, and it almost always has some reference to the oneness Jesus has instituted for the church. In chapter 2, Jesus has made Jew and Gentile one, creating one new humanity, reconciling us together into one body, and granting us together equal access to the Father by the one Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, Paul lists out how there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one divine Father, and grace has been given to each one of the members of his church. This oneness ordained by God the Father, created by Jesus' death, and maintained by the Holy Spirit was prophesied under the surface of Genesis 2.24. 
The church is prophesied in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And most of the time, particularly in Genesis, we can see it relatively clearly. But this one was hidden under the surface. We had to pull back a layer, or we had to have an inspired apostle pull back a layer for us so that we could see what was always there. I hope now that Paul has shown it to us, When we reread Genesis 2, we'll see it there for ourselves. Of course, Genesis 2.24 still teaches us about human marriage, but it also sets the stage for understanding how human marriage displays the gospel. The way Paul has framed this, we cannot conclude that human marriage is the original. In fact, it's Christ's marriage that provides the model for human marriage. Before creation, as God developed his plan for history... He decided to create human marriage as a way to help humans understand the relationship he intended to have with his people. Paul has already sketched out the primary parallel of the authority structure in marriage as it mirrors Christ's relationship with the church. But very briefly as we close, I'd like to consider how our marriages can display the gospel from two different angles. Each of these angles applies equally to husbands and wives. But in light of the God-ordained headship of husbands, I believe it's right to stress that husbands should lead, set the example in both of these areas. First, where sin is present in our marriages, we have the opportunity to display the gospel. Husbands might wrongly conclude that our marriages can only reflect the gospel appropriately when we... Husbands are accurately mirroring Christ's love for the church and our own sacrificial love for our wives. Certainly, that is a husband's responsibility. We should be pursuing this kind of love consistently, but the gospel shines forth when we fail to love. And the other side of it is when our wives extend forgiveness to us. Likewise, when wives find submission a hard pill to swallow... A husband should extend grace and patience, continuing to love her even when her sinful stubbornness makes life hard. Er, harder. The gospel says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Let it be so in our marriages. Secondly, where suffering is present in our marriages, and they're often intertwined, we have the opportunity to display the gospel. As a husband seeks to cherish his wife extending warmth toward her, particularly when she's in pain, the gospel can be displayed. When she's ill, when she's overwhelmed with the kids, when she's experiencing broken relationships with friends or family members, all of these things qualify as suffering. You could fill in the blank for your own life. Husbands should see these moments of difficulty, challenge, and weakness as opportunities to move toward their wives in empathy to seek to provide comfort, to exercise the ministry of presence. Sometimes you just have to be there with them. Or for wives, when your husband is wearied by the responsibilities of his job, when he's sick, when he's discouraged because life hasn't turned out like he was hoping, can you see these situations as opportunities to serve as a conduit of God's comfort? We can seek to alleviate the suffering of the other as well, But oftentimes, only God can do that. When husbands and wives share each other's suffering, seek to comfort one another, and remain committed to each other when everything is hard, the gospel is on display. 
through the gospel, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus says, just as God used my suffering, the suffering of the cross, so too this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Let's pray together and ask for help to live this out faithfully. Father, we do need your help. Marriage is hard in this broken, fallen world. We confess our own sin in that. Marriage is hard oftentimes because we fail and because we rebel and because we sin. We celebrate the truth that you have indeed solved that problem. But in the day-to-day, we continue to sin and we continue to struggle to sin. We pray that your spirit would be at work to pull us back, to grow us in holiness for the sake of our spouses. Would you help us to know how to move toward each other in ways that are supportive, warm, comforting, helpful? And would you be putting yourself on display in all of this? This is not just for for our own comfort's sake. This is for the display of your gospel in the world and even to the angelic authorities looking on. It is to your glory that we seek better marriages, better lives. And so we pray that you would help us bring healing to what's broken in our relationships, bring help and comfort where things hurt really bad. Walk with us through the darkness. We thank you that we can count on you to walk through us through every dark valley that your presence is what we need more than anything else. But we pray that we would be intentional about seeking to embody your presence for our spouses. So thank you for giving us marriage, such as it is. For those of us who are married, we thank you for our spouses. And we pray that you would help us to love each other well. For those who are not married, we pray that they would see the value and benefit of marriage, whether for themselves or for the church in general and that they would find ways to support those who are married and encourage them. Thank you for putting us together in a body. Help us to have confidence that our head, Jesus, is leading us to the great presentation of glory at the end. We look forward to the spotlessness of the bride, because it means our own spotlessness. And when we look in the mirror, we seem so dirty and so broken, and we hold fast to your promises that there's coming a day when those spots will be gone, the wrinkles will be gone, the brokenness will be gone, and we never have to look on it again. Thank you for your great work of salvation. From eternity past to eternity future, we are secure in your hands, and we revel in that. And we pray that that truth, that fact, that security would influence the way we live in our relationships. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Be seated. We've got some announcements.